The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Scotland is a beautiful country with a rich history and a bright future. But it has a dark underbelly and it has been home to some of the most mysterious, disturbing and barbaric crimes ever committed. Cold-blooded murders, serial killers, gangland assassinations, violence against children, acts of terrorism, mysterious disappearances and acts of pure evil fueled by lust and greed. True Crime Scotland is a podcast dedicated to bringing you stories of the crimes that have happened in Scotland but have shocked the world. Some of the crimes we'll cover you'll be familiar with, others you'll have forgotten about and some you might never have heard of. Search for us on your podcast app or find us on Twitter and Facebook under True Crime Scott. Stories of real crimes and mysteries from Scotland. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve. Hi there everyone, and welcome back after the hiatus to Season 2, Episode 1, and our 13th case together. As you may have noticed, there's been a slight change at the start to make this podcast more fitting to me and the subject matter. If you like this show, I would urge you to subscribe on your chosen podcast app, and the new episodes will drop when I release them. If I do lose you along the way, I thank you for giving me a chance. I would also suggest that you follow me on one of our social media platforms to keep up to date with this season. I will give out the links at the end of this show so as not to waste any more of your time here. I've decided to take the same format for this season where I have 12 cases planned out to cover and then take a short recess to reassess where the show is and make any necessary changes so I predict that this season will run until the week before Christmas. Anyway, that's enough of the business, and on to what you are here for. Our 13th case together is a heartbreaking one. This one was actually researched and written by my wife. She said that she wanted to try writing an episode, and when I read it, I was gripped by it. So ladies and gentlemen, credit where credit is due, this one was actually written by Ashley. One of the hardest things for someone to endure is rejection and betrayal. Sadly, this sometimes is the case for many people in our society. 
Today's case is covering a story of a young woman brutally murdered and bullied by a gang that she believed was her friends. The worst thing about this case was the victim also had mental health issues, which meant that she was more accepting than any person normally would be, which in my opinion makes the perpetrators that much more vile. This case also describes how the victim was also let down by the authorities who should have been supporting her. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your true crime fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to the memory of Gemma Hater. Gemma Hater was born on the 13th of September 1982 in the market town of Rugby in Warwickshire. Gemma was the youngest child to Sue Prince, but Gemma's birth father left when she was very young, so she was raised by her stepfather. She had a sister, Nikki, who was Sue's eldest, and a brother, Neil. There was a seven-year age gap between Neil and Gemma. Gemma grew up in a loving family home in Rugby. Rugby is a market town in Warwickshire which is close to the River Avon. It is the second largest town in the county and it is 30 miles east of Birmingham. The town is somewhat famous for three students at the independent school, Rugby School, in 1845, producing the first written rules of the sport with the same name. Early in her life, Sue, Gemma's mother, was worried about Gemma's development. Gemma craved constant attention, and her mother believed that Gemma appeared to be in her own little world. Doctors later confirmed at the age of four Sue's fears. Gemma had a learning disability and behavioural problems. Gemma struggled with her speech and having a routine as a child. She was described as being young for her years and had a loving, caring nature. Her brother Neil, who was very protective of Gemma, described her as being very innocent and naive. As Gemma grew up, her differences became more apparent and during her school years she was bullied and struggled to make friends. Sue took Gemma to see a paediatrician at the age of 13 as her behaviour appeared more erratic than usual and she was concerned that there was something more serious developing. The doctors diagnosed that Gemma was going through the menopause. The natural age of the menopause is between 45 and 55. At the age of 18, Gemma was diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum. Two IQ tests were conducted with Gemma. The first in 2001, where she scored 62, and in 2008, where she scored 65. Gemma received additional support within mainstream education throughout her primary school years and transferred to a special school for her secondary education. At the age of 19, Gemma was given a residential placement at a special college in North Wales that helps young adults with learning disabilities develop their social skills and support them through understanding their condition. 
Gemma was provided with a safe and supportive learning environment where she could explore and gather her own experiences as well as develop strategies for managing her health. This was the first time Gemma was away from her family, but Sue felt that this was best for Gemma. The dedicated team of staff provided Gemma with an individually tailored program of education, care, work experience and leisure, as well as life skills and training within the community to enable her to live as independently as possible and make her own choices. Gemma thrived at this college and remained there for two years. Eventually, at the age of 21, Gemma felt that she was ready to face the world on her own. However, Sue wanted her to stay there for the final year as she was concerned that her daughter wanted to rush things as the lure of independence was too great. Despite her health conditions, Gemma was determined to lead an independent life. The college had built her confidence. Gemma returned to rugby in July 2004 at the age of 21 and moved into shared supported housing with the Mayday Trust. The Mayday Trust is a specialist supported housing provider. Mayday provides direct support through its personal transition service which allows people going through tough times and rebuilding their strength based on their personalised support. It specialises in such life transitions as people experiencing homelessness, leaving care, coming off drugs or alcohol, coming out of prison or psychiatric hospital. Her tenancy broke down within two years as a result of Gemma's difficulty in social communication and again her strong desire for independence. Gemma stated that she did not want to be treated like a child. One staff worker at the trust identified there were worrying examples of Gemma's behaviour putting her at risk, but more on that a little bit later. While she was at the residential service, she was under her supervision of the adult social care. They however closed Gemma's case shortly after I returned to rugby. They continued to have intermittent contact with Gemma, which increased when her tenancy became at risk in 2005. In early 2006, Gemma was referred briefly to mental health services as her behaviour was becoming more and more volatile. The mental health professionals described that throughout this period, Gemma's behaviour towards professional support was aggressive and uncooperative and she refused assessments. Following this period, though, several re-referrals were made to adult social care, but unfortunately she was deemed ineligible for the service on the grounds that she no longer had a diagnosis of a learning disability and had previously failed to engage. Despite the lack of a learning disability diagnosis, she was generally seen as someone who did have difficulties and vulnerabilities associated with a learning disability. Gemma was in debt and unable to cope with paying her bills and was considered at risk of extortion or exploitation by others. Her lack of social skills and her behaviour towards others put her personal safety at risk. 
As a result of numerous tenancy breaches, a county court order was sought and Gemma was evicted from her property. After her eviction from the Mayday Trust tenancy in September 2006, Gemma lived in a private shared tenancy. Just a side note for people keeping up with this when listening. When renting a property in the UK, there were four types of tenancy. There is a secure tenancy, which is predominantly issued through housing associations and local authorities, which give the tenant much more rights to the property. But I just want to go into a brief overview, so we'll not go into this too deeply. But guidelines are mainly focused under the Housing Act of 1985. These types of tenancies are rarely issued today. There's also the assured tenancy, which is granted mainly under the Amended Housing Act of 1988. These give a tenant less rights. For example, no longer would a tenant be given permission to take on a lodger, which was allowed previously. The tenure, however, did not have an end date and could only be ended by notice and a possession order by the landlord or 28 days notice from the occupant. There are also fixed term tenancies and assured shorthold tenancies, the latter being what private landlords would use, where they would only need to give you a notice period and you would have to leave. The reason that I bring this up is I do not know what the circumstances behind Gemma's eviction was, but knowing what social housing is like, the landlord would have had to have proven proportionality and due diligence to the judge, or in layman's terms, whether the punishment fits the crime and what they have done to support her. In December 2007, Gemma was again referred to mental health services and an assessment commenced. This included psychiatric, psychological and occupational therapy assessments. As a result, she was allocated to a community psychiatric nurse for support, though she was not referred for a social work assessment. Once again, as I'm getting some of this from a serious case review, I will translate. The authorities who were charged with looking after Gemma did an assessment of her latest property to see if it was suitable for her needs and she was assigned a member of staff to check up on her but a full assessment as to whether she needed significantly more care was never carried out. The assessments took an extended period of time to complete due to Gemma's sporadic engagement. Whilst undergoing a range of mental health assessments throughout 2008 Gemma's lifestyle was becoming more chaotic and she was again in danger of losing her tenancy. There was a high level of contact with the police between 2007 and 2008 with between two to four calls per month mostly around Gemma being the victim of thefts and concerns about her being the subject of extortion. In February 2008 the police made a safeguarding referral to adult social care. This referral was not investigated and the police were advised to contact mental health services. So let us just pause there and analyse that. The police, the country's law enforcement, has gone to a care agency and rather than taking it on and seeing if it needs delegating elsewhere, they've gone, nah thanks mate. 
take more of your time where you could be investigating crimes so that you can find out the right agency to refer this to. Subsequently, following her eviction from her private tenancy, Gemma was accepted as a homeless person by the local authority and moved to her final tenancy with Rugby Borough Council Housing Department in August 2008. All through her life, Gemma had struggled to make friends and build relationships. However, in her mid-twenties, Gemma finally meets someone who was more than willing to be her friend. Her mother Sue and sister Nikki were delighted when a young woman, Chantelle Booth, wanted to be friends with Gemma. Chantelle was a lot younger than Gemma, but this didn't faze anyone. Nikki believed that there was a kindness in Chantelle's heart to want to be friends and help Gemma. Gemma finally had the friendship she had longed for. She was becoming more sociable, going for drinks in bars, enjoying trips to Chantelle's home for coffee. Chantelle even introduced Gemma to a wider network of friends, including her boyfriend, Daniel Newstead, as well as another couple, Jessica Linus and Joe Boyer. The two couples were neighbours and lived about two miles from where Gemma did. As time went on, however, things seemed to change. The more the family got to know Chantelle, the more they believed she was taking advantage of Gemma, with Gemma being too naive to see what was happening. Chantelle was constantly taking money from Gemma. Family friend Fran Cutts told how Gemma was being forced to steal things on behalf of Chantelle and her other friends. She couldn't seem to comprehend that stealing was wrong because she was doing it for her friends, Fran explained. She also made a worrying discovery that Gemma was being coerced into stashing drugs, including heroin and crack cocaine, in her flat, which she believed were presents and she was looking after them for her friends. Gemma was sacrificing her own needs for Chantelle. Booth and her friends were using Gemma for cuckooing. Cuckooing is a form of crime in which drug dealers take over the home of a vulnerable person in order to use it as a base for drug dealing. To Gemma, her relationship with Booth would have been more important to her and no matter how she was treated within that friendship, she wanted to have that friend and that relationship in spite of the ways that Booth would treat her. On Saturday, August the 7th, 2010, Gemma visited her mum Sue before a night out in rugby with Booth and four other friends. The aforementioned Jessica Linus, Daniel Newstead, Joe Boyer and another friend, Duncan Edwards. Whilst out, trying to join in the group's camaraderie, as a joke, Gemma started telling Dorman and Barstar that Booth was only 15 years old. This joke, however, backfired, as unbeknownst to the group, this information was being shared via the pub watch scheme, 
resulting in the group being refused entry into a number of pubs and being ejected from others. The Pub Watch scheme in the United Kingdom is a partnership where licensees in a specific town or city unify as an independent group to preempt crime and antisocial behaviour in licensed premises, either by using bouncers' walkie-talkies or communication by telephone. This caused some anger towards Gemma, who the others claimed had spoiled their night. As they were heading away from the town centre, Linus allegedly hit Gemma in the face while the boys berated her in the middle of the street, all to the apparent amusement of Booth. At approximately 11.30pm, Booth was caught on CCTV, aggressively pushing Gemma down the road, with Gemma appearing visibly upset. About an hour later, CCTV captured Booth again abusing Gemma. After the second attack, Booth stormed off, leaving Gemma alone, clearly distraught. In the days that followed, more disturbing footage would emerge of that night. If I can find it, I'll post it on the discussion group later this week, so that you can see how bad it got for yourself. On Monday the 9th of August, two days after that incident in Rugby Town Centre, a naked, battered body was discovered by a disused railway line just outside the town. It was an early morning jogger who raised the alarm and instantly called the police. The body was later identified to be that of Gemma Hater. Gemma's family, who was struggling to come to terms with the tragedy, had to formally identify her body. Gemma had been beaten tortured, stabbed and suffocated. She was left face down in the undergrowth. A murder investigation was now underway and police trawled through hours of CCTV. They finally found Gemma on CCTV with Booth and the four other friends just five hours before she was murdered. So, my dear listener... As I have stressed in the past, not all cases are whodunits, and I'm pretty sure by now that you have sussed out who was involved in Gemma's passing. I think, however, when I explain what happened to Gemma, you will discover how vile these individuals were. After finding various different pieces of CCTV evidence, 27 in total, the police were finally able to piece together Gemma's final night. On the 8th of August, Chantel Booth and Daniel Newstead invited Joe Boyer and Jessica Linus to join them between 4 and 5pm at their flat for Sunday lunch. Boyer took along his friend Duncan Edwards. The group were said to be drinking lager and smoking weed throughout that afternoon and evening. Following an exchange of text messages between Gemma and Booth, Gemma joined them at their flat a couple of hours later. It is unclear whether the motive was the embarrassment of the night before, but during the course of that evening, Gemma was subjected to prolonged and serious assaults 
over a period of four hours. The subsequent witness statements given by the perpetrators suggest that this had been motivated by an alleged theft of £800 from Booth and the fact that Gemma had failed to pay it back. However, the true motivation for the assaults is debatable. The assaults included sustained physical assaults and being headbutted, resulting in several fractures to her nose, being hit with a mop, being forced to drink urine out of a lager can, and being locked in the ensuite bathroom. Her phone was taken from her, and the battery was flushed down the toilet so that she could not call for help. The gang were arrested for murder on Tuesday the 10th of August by Warwickshire Police. Booth, Linus, Edwards, Newstead and Boyer were all charged on Thursday the 12th of August with the murder of Gemma Hayter. Gemma's family were devastated that among the five people that tortured Gemma was her perceived best friend, Chantel Booth. So what do we know about this gang? Chantel Booth is believed to have known Gemma for about 18 months prior to the murder and was perceived to be Gemma's friend. Booth's relationship with Daniel Newstead had started around October 2008. Booth was 21 at the time of the murder and living in a private tenancy with Newstead. She lived what was described as a chaotic lifestyle, appearing emotionally immature and was the subject to regular episodes of domestic abuse and violent altercations with other individuals. Booth was known to the probation services following an offence of grievous bodily harm resulting in a community order with a supervision requirement, a curfew requirement and an education, training and employment requirement. Booth maintained regular contact with her supervising probation officer throughout the period of supervision. Both Booth and Newstead were subject to ongoing concerns of antisocial behaviour incidents which involved abusive, aggressive and violent behaviour. Booth was identified as both a perpetrator and a victim of this behaviour. Despite her being known to the police, Booth, however, had only received one conviction, this being for common assault of a female in May 2010. One agency stated that Booth was involved in an incident with Jessica Linus in June 2010 when they allegedly bullied and assaulted another vulnerable young woman living in a hostel but no criminal proceedings came of it. Daniel Newstead was 19 at the time of the murder and, as mentioned earlier, was living with his girlfriend. He was convicted of a number of offences between 2004 and 2008, including an offence of a fray when he was in possession of a metal bar and a knife. Newstead was known for his violence towards women, including having a history of domestic abuse against his mother, sister, 
previous girlfriends and Booth. Newstead was also described during the subsequent case review as having a chaotic lifestyle and also emotional immaturity, but they also mentioned his persistent substance misuse. Newstead was known to mental health services for his substance misuse and anger management issues. Jessica Linus had not long been in a relationship with Joe Boyer, who she had met in supported accommodation in May 2010, and she moved into his private tenancy in July 2010. Linus was 18 at the time of the murder, and Linus was known to the police as both a perpetrator and a victim of crime, being both the subject and perpetrator of various assaults, the latter for which she was cautioned. Joe Boyer was 17 at the time of the murder, and as mentioned previously, he was living with Linus for a short time in his private tenancy. They were both neighbours of Newstead and Booth. Boyer had a referral order made against him in August 2009 for possession of cannabis, and a further order in June 2010 for the same offence. A referral order is an order available for young offenders who plead guilty to an offence whereby the young offender is referred to a panel of two trained community volunteers and a member of the youth offending team. It can be for a minimum of three months to a maximum of 12 months. He was in breach of the order and was in the process of being returned to court at the time of the murder. He was not known for any violent offences and was considered low risk of harm to others and was known to the police as the victim of crime. Duncan Edwards was 19 at the time of the murder and had recently moved back to rugby to live with his mother, close to the flats where the two couples lived. Previously living in Enfield in North London, Edwards was known to the Enfield Youth Offending Service from 2003 onwards and between 2001 and 2010 he was convicted of nine offences and investigated for a further nine. The gang showed no remorse for what they had done and it had been reported that the gang was laughing and joking in custody. However, during their interviews they blamed each other and all refused to accept responsibility for Gemma's death. It was clear that they all had a part to play in the heartless torture of such a vulnerable woman. Just to show the lack of remorse shown by the gang, I will share with you a snippet of a letter sent by Joe Boyer to a friend whilst he was on remand. The quote. I can't wait to get sentenced now and go to proper jail for lifers. They sound sick, bro. Key to my door, bare shit to do, PlayStation and DVD, proper bed, proper chair and table. Imagine that. Speaking to my lifer, an IPP officer the other day, and she was telling me about all the jails. I don't know if you know what they are, but I get to go into town with a screw in normal clothes. I get to go to McDonald's and cinema and Nando's or whatever I want. I'm just going to allow that to register, the lack of remorse there. 
The trial of the five perpetrators began on June the 8th, 2011, at the Old Bailey in London, almost a year after Gemma's death. The case was presided over by Lady Anne Rafferty. Timothy Raggett QC was representing the Crown Prosecution Service. All five pleaded not guilty to the murder of Gemma. The gang's behaviour in court was no different to their behaviour in custody. Throughout the trial, they were all laughing, joking, mocking, and just showing a complete lack of respect to the family of Gemma and to the proceedings. The full extent of Gemma's abuse from the people she trusted was revealed. The court learnt the full extent of the atrocities that took place on Sunday, August the 9th, 2010. And here's a brief recap. Gemma visited Booth where the gang were drinking. Once she was there at the flat, rather than being greeted, Gemma was abused and beaten. Gemma was beaten so badly her nose was no longer attached to her face. Gemma was forced to drink urine from a lager can. They then put a bin liner over her head. She was also hit with a mop and beaten in the flat before being cleaned up. The gang offered to walk Gemma home. Despite everything, Gemma still wanted their friendship and their love. The gang and Gemma were picked up again on CCTV, just after midnight, where you could see Gemma had blood all over her face. Gemma was seen struggling to keep up with the gang. Still following the gang, who were leading her to her death, it seems that Gemma's desire to belong was stronger than her desire to survive. Gemma wasn't being walked home, but escorted to the disused railway line where they repeatedly stabbed and stamped on her. They stripped her naked, leaving her face down while they ran away and her clothes were set alight. The Home Office pathologist Alexander Kular outlined at the trial more than 50 injuries he found when he examined the head, face and body of Gemma. He said that she had died from a blockage of her airways by the blood as a result of a severe facial trauma. She had basically drowned on her own blood. All of the defendants were found guilty of having some involvement with the crime. On the 12th of September 2011, all of the defendants were sentenced. Booth... Newstead and Boyer were convicted of murder and given life imprisonment. Chantelle Booth was told she would serve a minimum of 21 years in prison, meaning that she is eligible for parole in September 2032. Edwards and Linus were found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 15 years and 13 years imprisonment, respectively. The judge said, The victim had to be taken out of the flat, cleaned up, so that attention would not be drawn to her en route. She tagged along, battered, in pain, 
and unsuspecting, like a faithful loving dog as you walked her to her death. Over the years, you treated Gemma Hater like a toy to be picked up and put down, dependent, I suspect, on whether there was a gap in your miserable life which she could fill. Lady Justice Rafferty also said the vile torture and murder of Gemma was a chronicle of heartlessness. It is difficult to find the words to express how vile your behaviour was, she added. All five were also convicted of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. Following the convictions, the victim's family issued a statement. Our Gemma was a very loving and vulnerable woman who trusted everybody, and her trust in nature and vulnerability led to her death on the 9th of August. After the murder of Gemma, a serious case review showed that care workers and other agencies missed out on a number of chances to intervene in this horrendous murder. While the report found no evidence that Gemma's murder could have been predicted, an overall lack of thoroughness and information sharing led to a number of missed opportunities to find out what was happening more generally in her life and the company she was keeping. The independent chair of the case review, Cathy McAteer, said in conclusion that better support for Gemma could have made her less likely to fall into the company of people who presented her with serious risks. None of the agencies involved with her case knew the details of her relationship with the five killers. There had been clear evidence that Gemma was susceptible to abuse, as it was known that she had suffered mate crime regularly over some time. McAteer added, Although none of this was carried out previously by the five, she said, No single agency had the full picture of what was happening in Gemma's life. There were a number of missed opportunities for initialising safeguarding procedures, assessments or other interventions and for agencies to share information. Gemma wanted friends and a social life and this case raises wider issues nationally about community safety for single adults who may be vulnerable to disability-based harassment, hate or mate crime and exploitation. Gemma's family said they had constantly asked for help. In a statement they said, In a statement they said, We are devastated with the findings and that such negligence on part of some of the agencies could and did happen. We thank those agencies who did listen and act, in fact, bent over backwards to try and help Gemma. If they had been listened to, perhaps Gemma would not have been in the position she found herself in when she died. Two years before Gemma was murdered, she had penned a letter to the local authority asking for help, getting a job, with personal hygiene and looking after herself. She wrote, I would like a job, 
I need my independence. I would like someone to help me when I ask for it. This is what I need and what I want in my life. Sue, who was Gemma's mother, wished her daughter had been deemed eligible for assisted living. Rugby Council offered to assess Gemma for a place in assisted living, but the family was devastated when their decision came back that she was able to live by herself. Warwickshire County Council had apologised, saying it hopes to learn lessons from the report and has already made changes including restructuring adult disability services and new guidance for helping vulnerable people where there is no formal diagnosis of their condition. Wendy Fabro, Head of Care Services at the Council said, While the report found that Gemma's murder could not have been prevented, we are sorry that Gemma did not receive more support to help her live a better life. We apologise sincerely for the failings identified in the report and are determined to do everything we can to work with other agencies and the community to improve the safeguarding of vulnerable adults. Nobody deserves to be bullied or victimised because they are different. However, hate crime has risen year on year. A hate crime is defined as any criminal offence which is perceived by the victim or any other person to be motivated by hostility or prejudice towards someone based on their personal characteristics. According to figures from the Home Office, the number of hate crimes against disabled people has gone up more than 300% between 2011 and 2018. In 2017-2018, there were 7,226 offences recorded by the police in England and Wales. This was up from 1,748 in 2011 and 2012. The large increase may be due to the improvements made by the police into their identification and recording of hate crime offences and more people coming forward to report these crimes. Sometimes it's difficult to go to the police about a hate crime. If you are the victim of a hate crime, or know someone who is, there are various support agencies in place to support and offer guidance. Being you is not a crime. But hate is. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or if you want to know more, follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or look out for our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. I'll be posting information about the week's case on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix and I'm starting to learn how to use it and I'm posting the occasional picture on there with relation to the case. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest 
because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.